Oh boy. Nature. Alright, so I'm not even sure what to talk about on this one. There's just so much and simultaneously it's so weird. Um, so obviously we've talked about a lot of different philosophers at this point. Uh, we've looked at the systems of Descartes and Hume, our two modern scholars. We've looked at the medieval system of Aquinas and uh, the argument of Anselm for the existence of God. Um, we've looked at Plato's Euthyphro, and we've looked at the two religions of Taoism and Christianity. Um, and if there's anything in common about like all of these philosophical systems, is it, it's that there is, to some degree, a system. Um, like They are attempting to argue for a certain way of looking at the world. Um, like even Taoism is saying that there is this Tao, it is something, you know, real and important and something that you need to follow and interact with. Um, even Christianity's Ecclesiastes is, you know, as much as it is destroying a lot of the preconceptions, as much as it is questioning and challenging a lot of traditional morality and, like, what constitutes wisdom, at the end of the day it is, you know, making a point. Um, and trying to make a fairly cogent argument about it. But Nietzsche, man, I don't even know. Like, Nietzsche is both incredibly important and incredibly controversial. Um, scholars are still, like, the jury is out as to what exactly Nietzsche's legacy is and should be. Um, like, I know lots of scholars when I was doing both my undergrad and my master's who, who thought Nietzsche was, you know, trash. Um, or, you know, even, like, disreputable, bad philosophy, pernicious philosophy, destructive philosophy. And to some degree, Nietzsche embraces that. Like, the title of the work that we're reading, Twilight of the Idols, or How to Philosophize with the Hammer, um, the, the epigraph here is, you know, he wants to destroy the foundations of philosophy. He wants to break what was in order to make room for what should be. Um... And on the one hand, like, this is incredibly important work. Just like Descartes, you know, knocking out Aristotle and Plato before he starts his new modern project, um, Nietzsche is knocking out Descartes and Hume and Kant and all of the modern philosophers to this point to make room for something new, something reevaluative. Um, this is the first of our postmodern philosophers, and in some ways he is the most postmodern of our postmodern philosophers. Um, so, there's a lot to talk about here. First off, let's talk a little bit of history, like I don't want to get too deep into it. Um, but there is this weird moment that is taking place. Like, even though Nietzsche's writing less than a hundred years after Hume did, um, a lot has changed in those hundred years in Europe. Um, the... Hume is writing during the Enlightenment. It's like this peak of faith and reason across the board. Um, this is the time period that produces, you know, operas and great works of music and art and literature. Um, this is the birth of the novel and, you know, some of the, the great early novels are written during this 18th century time period. Um, things like uh, Tom Jones, things like um, the earliest works of Pushkin. Um, there are a lot of great 18th century writers and there are a lot of great 18th century philosophers. Like, we've only scratched the surface there. Um, in addition to Hume and the political philosophers that precede him, like Locke and Hobbes, we also have the Enlightenment scholars, the philosophes, uh, Montesquieu and Voltaire and Rousseau, um, also great political philosophers arguing for um, 
a sort of return to fundamentals um an, an effort to sort of like go back and you know analyze government rationally um and the sort of twin peaks of the enlightenment are on the one hand the american constitution like we built a government um that was founded entirely on rational principles we we figured you know if humans are going to be this lousy all the time which you know there's plenty of evidence that we do terrible things to each other then the only way to properly govern ourselves is to subject ourselves across the board agree to subject ourselves across the board to a document something that will not change something constant permanent um, something that can change itself necessarily but is still able um, to to maintain a foothold, to be grounded in reason itself. Um, and then the other great titan we talked about a little bit last time, Kant. Kant builds an entirely new philosophical system based on entirely new philosophical principles. Um, these categories, which he calls universal, are the foundation of all of our knowledge. Um, but that knowledge is nonetheless universal. It is not subjective. As much as Hume was questioning the foundations of rationality, Kant very much resurrects them. He makes ground for a universal idea of science. Um, but what happens in the 19th century, like pretty early on, um, is a lot of these systems start to fall apart. Like, as great as the American Constitution is, as, like, as proud as we are of the American Revolution and this sort of, like, throwing off tyrannical principles in order to make a new rational ground for our government, um, the French Revolution is the one that Europe was looking at more closely. And the French Revolution was a titanic failure. Like... It did not result in a stable government. It resulted first in just death and chaos throughout the streets. Like, the guillotine killed so many nobles and so many kings and so many just random citizens. People who would, like, you know, try and take any political stance. Um, the As much as, like, everyone was excited to see King Louis XIV executed, or uh, Louis XVI, I should say, um... It was just a matter of time until Robespierre and the first wave of revolutionaries were also guillotined. Um, it was just chaos, anarchy, uh, and not the good kind of anarchy where everybody is like working together and is observing their responsibilities, but the bad kind of anarchy where people are just scared for their lives all the time, where you know every person who is in a position of political power runs the risk of being assassinated the very next day. Um, and out of this anarchy came tyranny. As normally happens, Napoleon took over France, uh, swept across Europe, took over every country that he encountered, and basically threatened the entire European identity until he was pushed back from Russia and fought off at Waterloo. Um, and that didn't end it either. Like, the British may have installed a new king for France, but there were revolutions all throughout the early half of the 19th century, and those revolutions spread. Uh, Napoleon, when he took over Sons of Europe, he brought democracy with him, uh, the democratic principles of the French Revolution, even though they hadn't fully been instantiated or realized. Um, and as a result, like all over Europe, people were hungry for democracy again. They kept throwing off their monarchs. They kept revolting against their governments. And part of that is economic. Like This is when capitalism is starting to, to show up. So there's all this industry and all these people working really shitty jobs for like relatively little pay um 
for just horrible hours and working conditions. Like this is before OSHA, this is before labor unions, this is before you know there was any sort of organized effort to protect the interest of workers. Um, so you know, big barons of industry would just accumulate giant piles of money and totally exploit their workers way worse than we have it today. Um, and people got mad about this. They that's why they got upset. That's why they overthrew their governments. Um, and this very much culminated in around 1848. Uh, there was it was the season of revolution. The, that spring, that summer, something like 16 different countries all had revolutions at some point in those months. Um, some lasting longer than others. Some making real change. Some failing spectacularly. All violent. Um, so more than anything, despite the promises of reason at the end of the Enlightenment, this guarantee from Kant and Hegel that the world was entering this new utopian paradise, um, overwhelmingly people were looking at rationality as the thing that got people killed. Um, science is all well and good, sure, but when you start to take rationality and apply it to government, what you end up with is chaos. People revolting against these principles, uh, the corruption of humanity permeating these rationally principled governments and ultimately causing nothing but chaos. Um, so looking at this, looking at this world where rationality failed, Scholars like Nietzsche, like Schopenhauer, and like Kierkegaard start looking for a new way to understand the world. Um, they start to question these rational principles, the traditional morality of literally centuries, even millennia at this point, um, and they're looking for new answers. Um, Postmodernism is a big, scary word, and it's very broad in its context, but the basic assumption that the word makes is that it is a rejection of and a movement beyond modernism, uh, where modernism is that faith in rationality, like we saw with Descartes and Hume, um, like we see with Kant. Postmodernism rejects a universal rationality. It questions it. The conclusion that postmodernism most typically comes to is that rather than valuing the unified opinions of a whole, a sort of objective reason that is true and deductively guaranteed, postmodernism searches for subjectivity. Um, if there is a capital T truth, it is a capital T truth that is the sort of culmination, the sum of all of the lowercase subjective T truths. Um, truth is not, you know, what the church tells us or what our government tells us. Tr uh, truth is not what rationality as this, like, impersonal, objective thing tells us. Truth is what we make of it. Truth is a whole bunch of people from differing perspectives getting together and agreeing tentatively uh, on what truth is, with the understanding that it will change when we have better understanding, better perspectives, more people involved in the process. Um, and in some sense, this is a good thing. Like, postmodernism opens the door to new voices being heard. Like, you will notice that literally every scholar we have read up until this point, with the exception of Lao Tzu, is a white dude. Like, an old white dude. An old, dead white dude. Um, and Nietzsche is no exception on that front. Uh, but even though, like, it's going to take a while before other voices start to get heard, by the middle of the 20th century, postmodernism has encouraged people to listen to the voices of women, to listen to the voices of people of color, um, to listen to the voices of people from different backgrounds, different cultures. Um, as much as Western philosophy is defined by this monolithic 
series of white dudes, Plato and Aquinas and Descartes and Kant, by even Nietzsche's time, um, different philosophers are starting to pull from different traditions. Nietzsche very much responds to Schopenhauer. Um, you'll see he references Schopenhauer a couple times in this, in this uh, excerpt. Schopenhauer was a student of Eastern philosophy. He studied Buddhism and Taoism, and while he understood them only imperfectly, um, he brought that scholarship to his philosophy. Um, and Nietzsche picked up on it and both expanded on it and rejected certain degrees of it. Um, so for the first time in the grand tradition of capital W Western philosophy, um, Eastern philosophy is making its appearance. There's some cross-pollination happening here. Um, if that had happened before, it was quiet and isolated or perhaps so pervasive and uh, assumed that we don't even recognize it. Like if Plato might've had some knowledge of Eastern philosophy. Um, so Nietzsche is a philosopher of change. He stands on this, this precipice, this threshold, as we move from the modern philosophers of the early 19th century and the enlightenment into the new philosophy of the the later 19th century and the 20th century. Um, he is very much the first in some ways, although he is not alone. Um, like Nietzsche recognizes that Dostoevsky is doing really cool things, Kierkegaard is doing really cool things at the same time, even though it's in Danish, so nobody reads it. Um, he recognizes Schopenhauer is doing really cool, interesting new things. Um, and he's got other contemporaries who are experimenting and changing things between Darwin and the, the uh, theory of evolution, between Freud and his new uh, psychoanalysis, which ver has a lot of implications for epistemology as, you know, psychology is kind of becoming its own discipline. Um, things are changing. Things are changing rapidly, and they're changing in directions that they've never been seen before. Um, and what Nietzsche is very much doing uh, is sort of making that ground available, at least in this text. He recognizes that the old philosophy has to die for the new philosophy to be able to do stuff. Um, so insistently throughout his work, Nietzsche is destroying the foundations of the older philosophy. Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, Descartes, um, all these thinkers that have become so entrenched all the way up to Kant, who he sees as like the boogeyman of his time. Um, and that includes Christianity and religion um, in both its Catholic and Orthodox forms, which are the only ones that he's really gotten the experience with, I imagine. Um, well, I mean, like he's fighting Protestantism as well. I should, I should definitely clarify there. Um, but Nietzsche also is a difficult philosopher to study. Um, like, I, I frame him as this sort of threshold philosopher the same way that I framed Descartes, um, you know, back when I was talking about, like, oh, his subjective attitude is so different. Um, but the there's so much difference between Descartes the man and Nietzsche the man. Um, you can't study Nietzsche for any serious length of time without also just studying, you know, the person who Nietzsche was. Um, his psychology is every bit as important as his philosophy in some ways. And his philosophical project is very much informed by his psychology and how that changes over time. Um, like Nietzsche always has to come with asterisks, caveats. Um, you can't read him as sort of like unquestioningly as you read Plato and Descartes. Um, and maybe that's just an indication of how badly we read Plato and Descartes. 
Um, but where Descartes and Plato are sort of insisting on this objective rationality, um, and Nietzsche specifically rejects it, um, that kind of opens the door to questioning Nietzsche's, you know, personality, his personal values and his personal morals. But even more than that, Nietzsche himself was a really troubled man. Um, like his body of work is is pretty substantial. There's a lot of books that he wrote over the course of his life and like the 50 years between like 1825 and 1875. Um, and I have a pile of them on, on my, uh, on my shelf. Like I can literally grab them off the shelf and read them as, as I talk about them. Um, but what I want to emphasize is that Nietzsche has the very specific trajectory in his writing in a way that we don't see in many of other, our other scholars. Like, um, as much as like we talked about whether or not Hume is you know a, a theist or an atheist and like how different texts seem to suggest different things about him, like Nietzsche moves in a very specific direction throughout the course of his life, and that direction is craziness. Like not to put too fine a point on it, but um, Nietzsche was diagnosed with syphilis fairly early in his life, and it was not treated. Um, we don't know where he got it from. Presumably he wouldn't tell us even if we asked, like, as much as he seems to be life-affirming, we'd have virtually no knowledge of Nietzsche's sexual career. Um, but over the course of his life, he is literally getting brain damaged. Um, like, he is losing his mind um, in a really serious way. And that has led a lot of scholars to think that his philosophy is tainted, um, that it is somehow untrustworthy. Um, so, you know, the trajectory of Nietzsche's career, as far as like the actual business of his writing is he goes from being a scholar that is questioning philosophy, that is sort of like bringing up new ideas and questioning old ideas to a philosopher who is challenging old ideas and challenging them with his new ideas to a philosopher who is outright destroying um, old ideas and replacing them with his new ideas. But at the same time, like his early period, he is literally coming up with some really good, interesting stuff. Like he develops this whole new sort of attitude towards looking at history and philosophy. He comes up with these big ideas, which he becomes famous for. Um, but rather than like keep coming up with good ideas, instead he just sort of latches onto a bunch of his pre-existing ideas and he starts to just beat them into the ground. Um, so, you know, his early works, works like The Birth of Tragedy, which he refers to a lot in this text, um, Human, All Too Human, or my personal favorite, The Gay Science, um, these are works that are very much structured as experiments. Like, he is basically just conducting thought experiments. The Gay Science and Human, All Too Human in particular, he's literally just, like, basically putting up philosophical vignettes. Like, here's this interesting idea that I thought of. What do you think? Here's this other interesting idea. It may even completely contradict the idea that I had before, but isn't it interesting? Think about it. What do you think about this? Um, not, like, saying that it's true or false or either, but mostly just, like, probing, questioning, trying ideas on for size, and seeing how they fit. But then... Like, what he considers the peak of his career is a work called Thus Spake Zarathustra. And it is impressive. Like, it's a great book. Like, I mean that in the sense of, like, it is important as well as being, like, 
a masterpiece in its own right, artistic, valuable, um, philosophically relevant. Um, and in Thus Spake Zarathustra, he basically adopts the persona of Zarathustra, the, the prophet of Zoroastrianism, um, and proceeds to, again, challenge and question pre-existing morality, pre-existing rationality, pre-existing objectivity, philosophy through the ages, um, and replace it with this sort of like triumphant nearly scriptural or biblical style like Zarathustra trumpets his philosophy from the mountaintop and because it's framed like this it works as a myth like Nietzsche is basically writing his own mythology here which is fascinating and it's interesting and it's got a lot of good stuff to say but this approach, this sort of like, here is the capital T truth, here is the message that needs to be screamed from the mountaintops, is kind of at odds with Nietzsche's whole approach to questioning people who are screaming from mountaintops. Um, like, his, if Nietzsche is questioning the very foundation of objectivity, you would think that he would do so carefully, um, quietly, like with an eye towards not actually presenting his own ideas as gospel or as, you know, capital T, objective truth. And yet, Thus Spake Zarathustra, as, like, as fun as it is to read, as, as rich as it is philosophically, is also, you know, pulpit pounding. It's preaching rather than teaching. It's not doing philosophy in the way that Plato did philosophy, where like two people enter a room and they question each other and they come up with their like a third conclusion altogether. Um, but it's saying, you know, I, Nietzsche, am correct, and you are sheep for listening to all these philosophers who came before. Now, Twilight of the Idols is sort of in this period, like it's in this middle period when he wrote Thus Spake Zarathustra, when he wrote um, Beyond Good and Evil. And this is very much like most Nietzsche scholars point to these works as being like the most important in his in his career. Um, like these are the sort of like distillation of what Nietzsche is. Um, like people will say, you know, if you really want to get started on Nietzsche, start with Beyond Good and Evil, which I think is a huge mistake. Start with Thus Spake Zarathustra. Start with Twilight of the idols that's why it's in our textbook but importantly this isn't the end of Nietzsche's career the end of Nietzsche's career are works like Nietzsche contra Wagner or the will to power his unpublished journals which his sister published after his death um, and in these works he is literally just screaming like it is the same ideas we've seen better articulated elsewhere in his earlier works um, as thought experiments in the gay science and human all too human, as sort of like myths in Thus Spake Zarathustra. But now he's presenting them as though you're a fool if you listen to anything else. Um, now he is presenting them with the sort of fervor and anger that you expect from like fascist dictators and, you know, like evangelical Southern Baptist preachers on TV. Um, these people are angry and they're not listening to reason and they're not considering alternatives and they're not listening. They're just shouting at the top of their lungs, um, trying to be heard, trying like they believe so firmly, so convictedly in their own thoughts um, that they think that it is that it would be disrespectful to the ideas themselves if they did not present them in this profound way, like they are somehow sullying themselves if they believe anything else. And Nietzsche's legacy is really checkered as a result of this career. 
Um, like, I think Nietzsche's a valuable scholar. We'll, we'll circle back around to that at the end of this discussion. But I think he's also a dangerous scholar. Um, he is very popular among young people. Like, when I was in high school and college, I loved Nietzsche. I was, like, reading everything I could. But I have grown increasingly suspicious of him as I've grown older. And while some of that might be, you know, just like old people not getting what young people are interested in, and I, I admit that that's entirely possible, I also think that there is a certain sort of wisdom in keeping Nietzsche at arm's length, at recognizing that he is, in fact, dangerous. And a lot of his ideas really do not hold water, as enticing as they may sound. Because um, that's the danger here. Like, bad ideas presented confidently sound enticing. Um, that's probably what makes, you know, charismatic speakers like Trump and like Hitler in his day so, so desirable, so interesting, so um, tempting to listen to and believe. Um, like, char charisma is important, and Nietzsche has charisma in spades. Um, every one of Nietzsche's lines is like this carefully wrought epigram, this, this sort of beautiful axiom. Um, it is compelling and it is exciting and reading Nietzsche is like tapping into this, this fountain of livelihood and excitement and, and vivacity. Um, but at the same time, like what he's actually saying is really tricksy. Um, so, you know, I know that I have not given you a warning like this on any other philosopher. There's a reason. Um, today, lots of people really like Nietzsche. And some of them like him for good reasons. Others like him for really bad reasons. Um, and I want to want to talk about that to some degree. But, but let's, let's look at the text. Let's actually see what he has to say. And then we'll come back to this. Sort of like assessing Nietzsche afterwards. Um... So, again, we're probably not going to be able to cover the whole thing. There's a lot of depth because, again, like, Nietzsche strides from mountaintop to mountaintop. He has, like, a lot to say in just a little space. Um, but I do want to touch on some of the main points that he comes up with. And first I want to talk about Nietzsche and the ancient Greeks. Um, Nietzsche was a Greek scholar. His dissertation was Twilight or uh, The Birth of Tragedy, which is sort of like this dissertation set. Uh, slash assessment on like early Greek tragedy and philosophy and like the Greek culture altogether. He is very well read. Like he's read the Greeks, he's read the Latins, he knows what he's talking about as far as the ancients are concerned. Um, but he's also spinning it. Like uh, at this point in time, everybody has a classical education. If you have written a book like Nietzsche, if you are like the founding fathers of America, um, you learned Greek, you learned Latin, you read Homer in the original Greek, you read you know Cicero in the original Latin. Um, this is just part of growing up. Um, Nietzsche, on the other hand, is reevaluating the Greeks. He's questioning the typical way that scholars read these thinkers. So. The first section here is the problem of Socrates. Um, and you'll notice he reads Socrates very differently than we did when we were talking about the Euthyphro. Um, you'll notice that he criticizes Socrates a lot, and for reasons that don't seem great initially. Um, you'll notice that one of the major critiques he has against Socrates is that he was ugly. Um, but notice how he phrases this. This is section three of the problem of Socrates. Socrates belonged by origin to the lowest folk. Socrates was rabble. 
One knows, one can still see for oneself how ugly he was, but ugliness, which in itself is an objection, was among the Greeks virtually a refutation. Was Socrates a Greek at all? Ugliness is often enough the expression of a blocked development, a development hampered by interbreeding. Otherwise, it comes to light as a development in decline. Forensic anthropologists tell us that the typical criminal is ugly, monstrum in fronte, monstrum in animo. Um, but the criminal is a decadent. Was Socrates a typical criminal? At any rate, this would not clash with that well-known judgment of a physiognomist who sounded so offensive to Socrates' friends. A visitor who knew about faces when he passed through Athens said to Socrates' face that he was a monstrum, that he contained all bad vices and cravings within him. And Socrates simply answered, You know me, sir. Nietzsche is saying that to the Greeks, Socrates being ugly is itself a refutation of everything that Socrates has to say. And this isn't wrong. The Greeks placed a very high value on personal beauty. Um, like you'll notice, Greek sculpture, Greek art, even the Greek myths, they place a very high value on both masculine and feminine beauty. Um, masculine beauty can cause people to fall head over heels in love with people like Ganymede. Um, Helen is the face that launched a thousand ships. Um, but importantly for most of the Greeks, like up until Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, um, the idea that if you were beautiful, that outward beauty reflected and sort of embodied inward beauty. Um, you could not be both vicious and beautiful. You could not be both like uh, ugly and also virtuous. Um, Socrates, by being ugly, is, as Nietzsche says, a refutation to the Greeks of Socrates' position. Um, nobody would have listened to him because he was ugly, and by being ugly, that meant that he was a bad person. Um, and I realize, like, this absolutely rejects. This is like flying in the face of everything you learned from Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame about, like, who is the real monster? Is it the one with the monster face or the one with the monster life? Like, we recognize and take it as granted um, that ugly people aren't necessarily bad people and um, beautiful people aren't necessarily good people. But for gr the Greeks, that was absolutely granted. Like, if you were ugly, you were bad. If you were beautiful, you were good. That's all there was to it. Um, and it's in fact Socrates who starts to reject this, but that's what Nietzsche is pointing to here. Um, see, Socrates admits he is full of vices. He is a bad person, but Socrates takes this a step further. He says, okay, yes, I am a bad person. My passions are disordered. They make me want bad things. So to solve that, I enslave my passions to reason. In the Republic, Plato talks about the tripartite soul, how we are all composed of three bits, the passions, the will, and the rationality. And what we are supposed to do is put the will subject to the, our rationality so it will keep our passions in check, i.e. I will argue to myself that I shouldn't do something, like I shouldn't get drunk, or I shouldn't you know, have sex with random people. And as a result, I will force myself not to do that even though I want to. But what Nietzsche is saying is Socrates only had to do that because Socrates was already a terrible person. Um, if you are not a terrible person, if you are not subject to bad desires, bad passions, then you shouldn't have to like enslave yourself to, the, to rationality. You shouldn't seek to live rationally. 
Um, instead, you should seek to live naturally, by instinct. If you were a good person, if you were healthy, um, then why would you enslave yourself? Why would you limit yourself? Why would you objectify yourself? Um, why not just, you know, eat, sleep, drink, and be merry? Why not just have sex with whoever you want to? Why not have fun, is basically what Nietzsche is saying. Socrates, by contrast, is preaching a philosophy of death, of putting his own passions to death, um, of limiting his own desires, his own youthfulness. Um, that's wrong, according to Nietzsche. Why should we enslave ourselves to these moralities? Why should we listen to a bunch of grumpy, angry, vicious old men who are saying, don't act like a young person when you are a young person? What if we are the healthier ones? What if young people are the future? What if young people have the better ideas? What if they don't have their souls corrupted by age and experience and just anger and bitterness? Um, what if Socrates is just a monster and as a result we shouldn't listen to him? Um, now, part of this goes back to, again, uh, Nietzsche's The Birth of Tragedy. And you'll notice that this connects fairly deeply to his last section, What I Owe to the Ancients. Um, what he suggests both in that section, What I Owe to the Ancients and The Birth of Tragedy, is that there is this sort of division in Greek, in Greek history and art and philosophy. Um, that the Greeks were originally Dionysian and then became Apollonian. These are the two primary instincts in the Greek psyche. And they are very much conflicted with one another. Now, if you know anything about Greek myths, then you know that both Dionysus and Apollo, i.e. Dionysian, Dionysus, Apollonian, Apollo, um, these are both Greek gods. And more than that, they are sort of Greek gods directly opposed to one another. Dionysus is the god of wine. He is the god of parties. He is the god of madness. He is the god of drinking. He is the god of orgies. Um... Apollo, on the other hand, is the god of civilization. He is the god of literature and art and music and sunshine and enlightenment and wisdom. Um, he is the god of prophecy. He is the god of knowledge. Um, he is also the god of plagues because civilization, hooray, cities, breed plagues. Um, but what Nietzsche stresses is that the Dionysian mode is originary for the Greeks. It is elemental to them. It is what they started as. The Apollonian attitude is a new contraption, something that guys like Socrates brought about by corrupting the old morality. See, under Dionysian law, you were expected to just behave naturally, do whatever came naturally to you. If you wanted to sleep with that beautiful girl or that beautiful guy, then you go and do that. Um, if you want to get totally drunk and just like let loose and just do whatever you want then you went and you did that even if you were just sad you expressed it you like sat down and you wept and you cried and you grieved and you just didn't care what other people thought about you didn't care about like making somebody feel good instead you just expressed who you were at that moment you let yourself be yourself Dionysus did not expect you to like put on airs, to act like something you're not, to do things for the sake of decency or propriety or civilization. Um, Dionysus expected you to just do what was most instinctive, to do what was most basic to you. And Nietzsche is saying, as long as you are a healthy person, that is a good thing. 
Like, by all means, eat, sleep, and fuck your way to happiness. Why is that wrong? Why do people keep insisting that that's wrong? All, the only solution Nietzsche can come up with is that guys like Socrates, guys who have bad instincts, who are inclined to do bad things, who, if given license, would drink too much and become sick, would have too much sex and either, like, hurt people or hurt himself or, again, get, like, contract an STD because of his completely unlicensed behavior. Um... What Nietzsche is insisting is, why should we subject our happiness, our youth, our love for life to these grumpy old men who don't know how to live properly? That is Apollonian. Apollo is the one who says, control yourself. Uh, sublimate your emotions. Rather than, like, weeping in public, write a, a beautiful sonnet. Rather than, you know, expressing incredible joy, um... Worship the gods. Make it subject to your rationality. Think before you act. Um, control yourself so civilization can prosper and thrive. And what Nietzsche is suggesting is, no! Like, that's, that's Socratic nonsense. So Socrates is the one, the, the crappy person, who is saying, like, oh, the only way to be good is to, you know, control yourself, to enslave yourself to rationality. Um, no, if you are young and happy and good at being young and happy, then be young and happy. Like, why listen to old men who are just going around controlling you? But even more importantly, think about this from Socrates' perspective. If, indeed, we are living in a Dionysian society, if everybody is young and beautiful and happy because they're young and beautiful, if they're just having sex with each other and everybody loves each other, um, if Socrates is ugly, he's not getting laid. Nobody is listening to him. Nobody is paying attention to him. Nobody is, you know, inviting him to their orgies. And as a result, Socrates is upset and angry and bitter. And as a result, he seizes power for himself by telling everyone around him that they are wrong. If Socrates can't enjoy himself, well, no one's going to enjoy himself. If Socrates is, if the only tool, the only weapon that Socrates has is his rationality, his dialectic, his argumentation, then he's going to make that the highest virtue. And so you have guys like Plato, who in the Republic literally write about how the government should be organized so that the philosopher is at the top. The wisest man should rule over all of the people who are not wise. For Nietzsche, this is an abomination. Plato invented what rationality is. Plato decided what wisdom is. When in fact... Wisdom is just behaving naturally, doing what comes naturally, following your instincts, doing what you desire to do. Um, Plato is corrupting the world. He is creating a world where priorities are reversed, where ugly, gross, vicious people like himself and Socrates are at the top of the ladder, and all of the people who should be at the top of the ladder, whose instincts are in order, who would, by nature, you know, be good people are stuck at the bottom, um, are forced to curtail their own goodness, are forced to stop doing what they want to do. And Nietzsche says that this is grotesque. This is a perversion of morality. This is a morality of death, a morality that idolizes death. 
Um, because the other dimension to Socratic philosophy, and this is moving on to the section reason in philosophy, the other sort of dimension is that these philosophers idolize not living things, not things that pass away, um, the beauty of music or, you know, like a beautiful flower or good smells or, you know, like the experience of joy. Instead, they're prioritizing eternal truths goodness as this abstract entity that exists in space somewhere and constantly governs all of our actions and never changes and is purely eternal, always perfect. Nietzsche is saying that's bullshit. Life is about change. Um, his philosopher that he idolizes in What I Owe to the Ancients isn't Plato, it's Heraclitus, the philosopher who said that you can't step in the same river twice, that life is change. Notice the first section in Reason and Philosophy. You ask me, what is idiosyncratic about philosophers? There is, for instance, their lack of a sense of history, their hatred for the very notion of becoming, their Egyptianism. They think they are honoring a thing if they dehistoricize it. See it, subspecies aeterni. That means, um, like, make it... Uh, of one species, an eternal species, in, in its eternal aspect is the literal translation. Um, if they make a mummy out of it. Everything that philosophers have handled for thousands of years now has been a conceptual mummy. Nothing real escaped their hands alive. They kill and stuff whatever they worship, these gentlemen who idolize concepts. They endanger the life of whatever they worship. In their view, death, change, and age, like procreation and growth, are objections, refutations even. That which is does not become. That which becomes is not. Philosophers and all of our philosophers to date are to some degree guilty of this. Um, they are keenly interested in eternal truths, um, these general principles. Uh, for Plato, it was the ideal forms, goodness with a capital G, capital J, justice, capital P, piety. They don't want to know about the individual instances of goodness or justice or piety. Don't tell me that this or that is just. Tell me what justice itself is. And what Nietzsche is insisting here is that's not a thing like we do not have justice except in so far as we have individual just actions we do not have beauty except in so far as we have beautiful things plato is doing stuff backwards rather than appreciating what he has he kills the thing that he has abstracts rips apart this concept beauty and then idolizes the concept the dead thing the thing that has no reality the thing that is eternal but also eternally empty meaningless something that he invented himself if plato really worshiped beauty he would worship beautiful things he would fall down on the ground before a beautiful flower weeping at its beauty he would commit himself to a beautiful woman and stand there like worshiping her until you know, she would have him or otherwise. Um, this is what life is supposed to look like. Not enslavement to these concepts, not to these abstractions, not to these, quote, eternal truths. Real truth, reality, is about individual things, entities, things that pass away, things that are and then are not, becoming, as Nietzsche puts it. Um, so if you notice, like, the conclusions that he comes to in section six, notice the four propositions. First, the grounds on which this world has been designated as apparent are rather grounds for its reality. Another kind of reality is absolutely indemonstrable. 
See, Plato and Kant and even Christians have all insisted, you know, we look around at this world and stuff passes away. I make a beautiful painting and it gradually deteriorates, falls apart. You see a tree outdoors, eventually it will die. It'll get struck by lightning or it'll wither of old age or something else will uproot it. Um, you and I, we are both mortal. We will pass away. Our lives are fleeting. But where Plato says, therefore, we should not pay attention to them, instead focus on eternal truths, where Christianity says, do not focus on the things that moth corrupts and where rust rusts it away, instead focus on eternal truths, Nietzsche is saying, no, this is truth. It is beautiful because it passes away. It is important because it is fleeting. It is getting ready to die. Um, this is what makes it real. Everything real is in the business of passing away. That's how the world works. What you are looking for instead is nonsense. Do not subject the real world to this eternal fiction. Subject your fictions to the real world. Um, there is nothing out there except what we sense and interact with and what passes away. So his second proposition, the distinguishing marks which one has given to the true being of things are the distinguishing marks of non-being, of nothing. The true world has been constructed by contradicting the actual world. This true world is in fact an apparent world insofar as it is merely a moral optical illusion. Everything that we talk about as far as like the realm of ideal forms or the Christian heaven or Kant's uh, noumenal world, um, everything that Descartes talks about as being the product of pure reason alone, um, not subject to the senses, um, this is all nonsense. It is all evidence of its fictionality, of the fact that we have concocted it and that it is not real. Um, it is just gleaned from reality. Um, the things that we interact with, the things we can touch and smell and see and hear. That's real, and we come up with these fake things to sort of compartmentalize it. And then we do the further injustice of juxtaposing it. Reality is what we can't know, whereas only the world of appearances is what we know. Nietzsche's like, no, that's not how that works. Appearances is reality. Appearances are the sum total of what we can interact with. There is nothing beyond them. The third proposition, it makes no sense whatsoever to tell fables about another world than this one, provided that the instinct to slander, trivialize, and look down upon life is not powerful in us. In that case, we revenge ourselves on life with the phantasmagorias of another, better life. Heaven, ideal worlds, abstractions, these are fictions, fables. They only cause us to devalue the reality that we actually have. We look around and we say, why do things die? I hurt that these things die. I suffer that these things die. Let me look to a world that actually does not die. And Nietzsche's response is, you are failing to appreciate the, the things that are dying around you. You are failing to appreciate the lives of the people in your life because you are worried that they are going to end. You are hurting yourself by separating yourself from these people because you refuse to trust them. Because you insist on looking instead at things that do not pass away. You protect yourself and in protecting yourself, kill yourself. Um, so the fourth proposition, to divide the world into a true and an apparent world, whether in the style of Christianity or in the style of Kant, a sneaky Christian to the end, is merely a sign of decadence, a symptom of declining life. 
The fact that the artist prizes appearance over reality is no objection to this proposition, for appearance here means reality once again, but in the form of a selection, an emphasis, and a correction. Tragic artists are not pessimists. In fact, they say yes to everything questionable and terrible itself. They are Dionysian. The people who recognize the tragedy of the world, who indulge in it, who show us the beauty and the transitoriness of the world, who invite us to look at dying and death, and still to value the things as they pass away, that, that's truth. That is Dionysian. Like he says at the What I Owe to the Ancients, the key sacred Dionysian act is the orgy, procreation, sex, because it both yields death and life, because it embodies the whole character of this passing away. This is truly mysterious, truly profound, and truly sacred, and yet we devalue it. Christianity especially says that sex is immoral, wrong, gross, grotesque. It vilifies it, where this is the most sacred thing in Nietzsche's mind. Now, to some degree, we have to kind of ask the question, okay, Nietzsche, if you are rejecting these, you know, like, eternal truths, if you are rejecting the Apollonian mode, if instead you're championing the Dionysian mode, well, that, what does that mean for us? Like, how should our behavior look? What do you respect? What do you champion? And this is the first of Nietzsche's big picture ideas. Like, he's got four of them. Um, and they're not like expounded explicitly here in the twilight of the idols although you can see bits and pieces of all of them in his various texts um but i want to explain them here because again they are so critical to his whole philosophical project and it is very indicative like the changes in these ideas over time indicate like how he changes as a thinker the first of these ideas is the overman um, the, the Ubermensch in German, um, what we typically call the Superman today. Um, and the Superman is exactly the image that he is championing, this Dionysian figure, this greater-than-human human. Um, and the, what distinguishes the Superman is that all of his instincts are in order. And you'll notice that I am using the masculine pronoun here, his. For Nietzsche, this is not a question. Women, womanness is a weakness. Um, like he frequently points to that. Sorry, ladies, he's a misogynist. We, this is one of the many reasons why philosophers are grumpy with Nietzsche. Um, but yeah, the Superman, almost certainly a man. Um, but importantly, the Superman transcends morality. Um, like all of the moral restrictions we place on people, Christianity is saying it's bad to have sex or it's bad to, you know, like desire to have sex. It's bad to live life, to eat and to drink and so on and so forth. Um, here are all of the restrictions on your life that Christianity presents you. Um, the Superman pays no attention. He is too strong for that. He knows in his heart of hearts that Christianity is defunct, that it is pernicious, that it is keeping people down, that it is a philosophy and a morality of death. So the Superman disregards it and acts however he wants regardless. But importantly, the Superman's instincts are so strong and so compelling and so desirable that people still admire him all the same. Like, he reveals the failures of traditional morality. He shows that Plato and Christians are liars. Um, he shows that Kantian philosophy is just a bunch of shadows and nonsense. Um, 
And if pressed, you'll see that Nietzsche will point to certain figures as examples of this. Like, the paradigm for Nietzsche is sort of this Prussian soldier, like a strong, young, capable, well-trained warrior um, sitting on horseback, gleaming in his uniform, equipped with sword and pistol, like ready for battle at any moment. That, to Nietzsche, is like the perfect example. Um, He thinks of Napoleon, like this guy who single-handedly reshapes the entire European continent. Um, whose will to power is so strong that he just overcomes any obstacle in his way. And that's the second of his major ideas, the will to power. Um, You'll see it floating around in the Twilight of the Idols in multiple places. What makes the Superman so capable is his will to power. For Nietzsche, will to power is the fundamental instinct that, like, makes us who we are. It is everything that defines us. The will to power is what causes us to compete with one another and to overcome one another. Um, Like a Superman distinguishes themselves because nobody else has nearly the will to power that they do. And so they consistently overcome all obstacles and all people who oppose them, except when they all like unite under a common crappy banner, like Christians united by Catholicism, um, this philosophy of death that is like made sheer numbers overpower the, the Superman. Um, that's like bourgeois or decadent philosophy for Nietzsche. Um, instead, the, the will to power is characterized by a will to live, um, a will to compete, a will to fight, a will to desire and not be ashamed of that desire, a will to do what comes naturally to you and also for that to be a good instinct, a good desire. Um, the Superman does what is right, not because he's like philosophized it to himself, not because he's rationalized it, but because it just feels right to him. He just wants to do that naturally. He just does what comes naturally to him and the world prospers. Um, that to Nietzsche is sort of the cornerstone of what good morality looks like. And notice, if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, gee, I wonder if I am the Superman, the fact that you doubt it is already an indication that you're not, according to Nietzsche. Notice the way that Nietzsche argues about this sort of morality, this sort of rationality. Um, note the in the, the section on the four great errors, Um, this error of confusing cause and effect. What he says is there is no error more dangerous than confusing the effect with the cause. I call it the genuine ruination of reason. Nevertheless, this error belongs among both the oldest and most contemporary customs of humanity. It has even been made sacred among us. It bears the names of religion and morality. Every statement formulated by religion and morality contains it. Priests and moral lawgivers are the ones who originated this ruination of reason. I offer an example. Everyone knows the book of the famous Cornaro, in which he promotes his skimpy diet as a prescription for a long, happy life, and a virtuous one. Few books have been read so widely. Still today in England, it is printed by the thousands of copies every year. I have no doubt that hardly any book, the Bible accepted, as is only fair, has done as much damage, has shortened as many lives as this curiosity which was so well-meaning. The reason? Confusing effect and cause. The honorable Italian saw in his diet the cause of his long life, whereas, in fact, the preconditions of his long life, extraordinary metabolic slowness, low expenditure of energy, were the cause of his skimpy diet. He was not at liberty to eat a little or a lot. His frugality was not freely willed. He got sick if he ate more. 
But for whoever is not a cold fish, not only does it do good, but it is necessary to eat properly. Scholars of our day, with their rapid expenditure of nervous energy, would destroy themselves if they followed Cornaro's regimen. Um, in short, the guy who says my diet is the cause of my healthiness confuses the effect with the cause. No, he is healthy and therefore he has a good diet. Um, he is inclined to a good diet. If he didn't have a good diet, he would get sick. Notice too that he applies this to politics as well. Um, in the second section, he mentions... Um, where is the passage? Every mistake in every sense is the effect of degenerate instincts, of a disintegrated will. This virtually defines the bad. Everything good is instinct and consequently is easy, necessary, free. Exertion is an objection. The god is typically different from the hero. In my language, light feet are the first attribute of godliness. If you were thinking it through, if you were saying to yourself, ruminating, am I the Superman? Am I a good person? Do I have good instincts? You were already failed. You are not a good person. You do not have good instincts for Nietzsche. You are a degenerate. You are failing. Um, you do not have the will to power, the instinct to life. If you did, you wouldn't question yourself. You would just do. Um, See, notice, like, his example about the party politics. The newspaper reader says this party is destroying itself by making such a mistake. My higher politics says a party that makes such mistakes is over. It no longer has sure instincts. Um, people looked at the Roman Empire and they're like, their decadence was the cause of their destruction. They got too greedy. They were rich and powerful and they started eating too much and drinking too much and disregarding policy. For Nietzsche, it's the other way around. No, the Roman Empire fell not because it was degenerate. It was degenerate because it was already dead. Its instincts had already gone sour. It was pretending to live while being dead. Um, likewise, anyone who says today, you know, the problem with America is its bad morality. Nietzsche would say, no, the problem with America causes its bad morality. It is already decadent. It is already dead. It is already failing. Anyone who says otherwise is misguided and wrong. America isn't dying because of its bad choices. Its bad choices are a symptom of its death. Um, this is how Nietzsche views the world. And if you're thinking to yourself, okay, so how do I become better? How do I become the Superman? Well, that's not how this works. For Nietzsche, you either are or you're not. You're either sick or you're well. And if you're sick, there's no regimen to become well besides stopping being sick, besides stopping your decadent instincts. Um, if your instincts are bad, then you are bad, period, the end, no conversation left. You'll notice that Nietzsche rejects the idea of free will altogether. Um, that is another of his four great errors. So let's look at that passage, because that's a particularly rich one. Um, this is section 7 in the Four Great Errors, page 1239. Today we no longer have any sympathy for the concept of free will. We know only too well what it is, the most disreputable of all the theologians' artifices, the aim of which is to make humanity responsible in the theologian's sense, that is, to make it dependent on them. Here I am simply offering the psychology of all making responsible. Wherever responsibilities are sought, what tends to be doing the seeking is the instinct of wanting to punish and rule. One has 
stripped becoming of its innocence when some state of being such and such is traced back to will, to intentions, to acts. The doctrine of the will was essentially invented for the purpose of punishment, that is, for the purpose of wanting to find people guilty. All the old psychology, the psychology of will, has its precondition in the fact that its originators, the priests in the elites of old communities, wanted to create a right for themselves to inflict punishments, or wanted to create a right for God to do so. Human beings were thought to be free so that they could be ruled, so that they could be punished, so that they could become guilty. In short, what Nietzsche is saying is you don't have free will. Free will is a concoction. It's something made up by the Christian church to make you feel bad about when you do things wrong. Oh, the church says, you have sinned. You have sinned and yet you are free. Therefore, you are guilty. Therefore, you must repent. Therefore, you must subject yourselves to us. And notice how insidious this is from Nietzsche's perspective. The church literally invents this idea of sin. Here is what it means to be a bad person. And if you are a bad person, then you must subject yourself to being a good person. You must instead repent, give up your bad behavior, and do only good things, i.e. give money to the church, serve the church, do whatever the church tells you to do. The church invents a system where it gives itself power, where you have to give it power in order to be saved. And yet salvation, at the end of the day, is something that can't be proven. Where is heaven, you ask? Oh, you can't see it until you're dead. Notice that passage in his history of the true world, how the true world finally became a fiction. Number two there is the true world unattainable for now, but promised to those who are wise, devout, virtuous, to the sinner who does penance. This is Christianity for Nietzsche. Christianity invents this fake paradise, says you can only get there if you obey Christianity, and then makes it so you can't see or touch or interact with this paradise in any way. Says, oh, when are you going to reach paradise? After you die an unverifiable state. Christianity creates a closed trap for you and then it closes the lid on top of you. When you convince yourself that Christianity is true, you basically subject yourself to Christian ideology, guaranteeing them power over you. And for your verification, all they have to give you is a promise, a promise they have no way or intention of fulfilling. You give them money, you give them time, you give them your livelihood, you give them everything real in this world, and in response they give you nothing, except a promise that you'll get to heaven, which is something that nobody can check, nobody can see, nobody can verify. It's a huge scam, is what Nietzsche is saying, and free will is at the heart of this. No, you do not have free will, is what Nietzsche is saying. Like, even more than Hume with his sort of skepticism of free will, Nietzsche is saying, no, free will is a myth. It is bullshit. It is part of the Christian indoctrination that causes you to feel bad about yourselves. What good would free will be, even if you had it? All it does is make you feel guilty, responsible for your actions. But really, there is no freedom. You are just a pile of instincts. You are just the desires that you have. Um... And therefore, you should just be following those desires like any animal. The idea of rationality, the idea of freedom, these are all fictions we have invented, abstractions, bullshit, 
to pile on top of ourselves to make ourselves on the one hand feel better about ourselves than the animals. Oh, look, I'm way better than a cat because I am rational. Um, and on the other hand, it's a way for us to order ourselves around for people to seize power irresponsibly. You know, I am strong, I am capable, I do good work, and therefore the guy who isn't strong stands over me with his evolved rationality, with his superior morality, and he uses my strength. He trades his, quote, wisdom, his bullshit intelligence for my power, my vivacity, my livelihood, my, my strength, my youth. Um, for Nietzsche, that is a fiction, and it needs to be destroyed. It must be. This is morality for Nietzsche. We need to get the death preachers out of the positions of power. We need to stop listening to philosophies that kill us and instead focus on our own desires, our own instincts, getting our instincts right. But that means that if you're not in that league, if you do not have good instincts, there's no way for you to get them. There's no way for you to solve your problem, to become a better person, to train yourself to be Superman. No, the Supermen are already among us, as far as Nietzsche is concerned. You can know them because they are better than you. You can recognize them because they are natural leaders. You were inclined to follow them. And you do better to follow them than you do following the preachers, for sure. Because they will, in fact, elevate you, humanity as a whole. Whereas Christians and Kantians and Platonists all just make you feel bad about yourself, make you feel guilty for things that aren't your fault. What Nietzsche is saying is, you will not become a better person, you will not become Superman, but at least I will not make you feel bad about being a shitty person. You are not wrong for being sick, you are just sick. So maybe that's better? Like, you're going to have to take that one for yourself. Um, but I also want to point out, like, this is a popular philosophy in a lot of ways. Um, notice, again, it takes the responsibility off of you. Um, it does, in some ways, insist that, you know, there are this better group of people, these Superman. And if you believe you are Superman, then great. Like, Nietzsche is literally telling you, carte blanche, do what you want. Like, if you are 100% convinced you have good instincts, you are the Superman, you can do what you want, then Nietzsche doesn't care what the hell that is. Like, this extends as far as, you know, rape and murder and whatever you want. Like, take what you want. That is the proper expression of your will to power. If you were one of the superior men, be a superior man that is what Nietzsche is saying and on some level it's really friggin compelling like you want it to be true like maybe tone it down a little bit like murdering and raping sounds like a kind of bad thing but what it is saying is that like if somebody is getting in your way if some like if your boss is this you know obnoxious petty tyrant who insists that you you know do all your jobs and then he like spits on you and forces you to do crappy jobs that you don't want to do for no good reason besides his own like position in the company Nietzsche is saying then crush him then step over him by all means, murder him. Get, out of your, get him out of your way. He is holding you back. He is holding civilization back. He is holding humanity back. And we should totally crush him. Um, it would be good to crush him. But, as much as this sounds 
really good as much as it sounds tempting as much as this is all carpe diem seize the day be yourself be what you want to be stop lying to yourself stop controlling yourself stop making yourself less than you are there's a definite flip side to this philosophy um notice in morality is anti-nature this which is on the whole about like morality killing us Healthy morality being good instincts and bad morality being a corruption of that. People like ruling over you. Christianity and Platonism and so on and so forth. Note in section three, um, Nietzsche writes, The spiritualization of sensuality is known as love. It is a great triumph over Christianity. Another triumph is our spiritualization of enmity, hatred. It consists in a deep grasp of the value of having enmities. In short, our way of acting and drawing conclusions is the reverse of what it used to be. In every age, the church wanted its enemies to be destroyed. We, we immoralists and anti-Christians, see our own advantage in the church's continued existence. In the political sphere, too, enmity has now become much more spiritual, much more clever, much more reflective, much more considerate. Almost every party grasps that its own interest, its own self-preservation, depends on the opposing parties not losing its strength. The same applies to politics on the large scale. Above all, a new creation, such as the new Reich, needs enemies more than it needs friends. Only in opposition does it feel that it is necessary. Only in opposition does it become necessary. Now, the Reich he is referring to is the Reich of Bismarck, the second Reich, so to speak. Um, Bismarck is this immense politician yet another of these supermen that nietzsche sees he is a diplomat he is a statesman he is a general he is a strategist and he basically like built germany out of nothing like in the middle of the 19th century germany was still kind of like roughly just a bunch of disconnected city-states like between the holy roman empire's disintegration of the last like 200 years and protestantism like separating it from catholicism like germany is just a freaking mess it's being fought over by the prussians on the one hand and the austrians on the other and there are still a bunch of like petty lords and fiefdoms it isn't a nation like France is unified under its king and has been for 200 years um, even under the French Revolution there is a clear France same with Great Britain um, same with Austria um, these are like the global powers throughout the like 500 years before Nietzsche writes um, the Holy Roman Empire used to be a great power but as its emperors have failed and as its organization has sort of disintegrated it is now just a bunch of squabbling little fiefdoms Bismarck unites them. Like there's a project to make a united Germany in place. Bismarck fights tooth and nail to make sure that the Prussians beat back the Habsburg Austrians, um, that they will become their own empire. There's a separate power from all of the powers that have gone before. Um, Bismarck does this by pitting the Prussians and Austrians against one another, by emphasizing that the Austrians are a threat. And then he continues to do that with other forces as well. He pits the Germans against the French. The French under Napoleon III wage war against the, the Germans and the Germans completely wreck them. And in the process, he unites the Germans as a common people. He needs the French in order to make the Germans powerful. He needs enemies in order to make our ideology stand strong. And Nietzsche recognizes this. He says, as, as we read, 
This is a spiritualization of enmity. It is a recognition that our enemies must remain powerful if we are to remain powerful. We identify ourselves in terms of what we are not. But this is also the basis of a very dangerous political ideology, specifically fascism. Now, I say this knowing that fascism is kind of a vague term and we're probably thinking of like Mussolini or Hitler or, you know, we, we understand fascists only sort of vaguely. Nazis, we know what Nazis are. Like Nazis, we have this very clear image of, of what they look like. They've, they've got the swastikas and the armbands and the, the like jackboots and, and they walk in a certain f pattern. They've got those big banners and it's Hitler and, you know, that, that makes sense. But fascism, fascism is like something that the Nazis apparently were, but we're not exactly sure how that works. Fascism generally is a sort of combination of ideologies that embody militarism, fighting. Fascism insists on the warrior as the highest like, position in the state. Your goal as a fascist is to die for your cause. Um, and fascists in general tend to identify themselves in terms of what they are not, in terms of what they hate. For the Germans, for the Nazis, that meant Jew the Jews. Like, we are the Germans, we are the superior race, we are the master race. It is our destiny to seize the world and rule it according to, like, our principles, because that will bring humanity into the Third Reich, the new world order. But the Jews are in our way. The blacks are in our way. The Poles are in our way. The Americans are in our way. And so we have to crush them. See, the thing is, they can't crush them. If the Nazis win the day, like if they take over the entire world, what they will start doing is systematically exterminating everyone who isn't them. Pockets of resistance will crop up and they will fight those pockets of resistance and they will cast these pockets of resistance as the capital E en enemy, as the threat that needs to be destroyed. And if some other political leader rises up, if in fact they do manage to whitewash the entire world and turn them all into a bunch of blonde, blue-eyed, like, ubermen, then what will happen is you will have ubermen against ubermen. They will never stop fighting. There is no endgame for fascism. No state of peace. Fascism thrives on war. It will die if it does not have enemies. That's what Nietzsche is describing here. And this idea of the Superman, this idea of the will to power, even Nietzsche's own approach to philosophy, destroying what has come before, requires an enemy. Nietzsche's philosophy left in a vacuum makes no sense. Like, you can grasp at what is the Superman, what are his principles, and at the end of the day you're just like, eh, they just fight people. Because that's what the Superman does. That's what the will to power is, the will to overcome. Without obstacles, it doesn't exist. What is the philosophy that they aim for? More fighting, more enmity, more argumentation, more overcoming. It never ends. That's what makes Nietzsche so dangerous. See, the Germans in World War II, the Nazis, they loved Nietzsche. And they perverted him. Don't get me wrong. Nietzsche is not a Nazi. I do not claim that. He was an anti-Semite. He was a racist. He did think that the Germans were like the ultimate power in the universe and should totally be instated. Nonetheless, he was not a Nazi. He did not advocate systematic killing of the Jews. He did not advocate like genocide in any sense. The superiority of the race was a matter for rule, not death for Nietzsche. 
Um, it just meant that things were disordered, that the country was decadent for him. Um, but that said, it's really easy to adapt his philosophy to fascism, to Nazism, to terrible atrocities. Because on the one hand, it is so compelling. I mean, how cool would it be if you are, in fact, the savior of the universe by doing what comes naturally to you, by trusting the people who are like you and who agree with you, you can usher in a new world order. You can make the world perfect. You can wipe out everything that is wrong about the world. That's really compelling stuff. Heck yes, I want to be at the forefront of like the movement that changes the world. I want to seize that power. I want to be the best version of myself that I can be. But what Nietzsche is saying is do that and don't let anyone get in your way. Do that by crushing everyone who opposes you. And that's different. That's wrong. That's diabolical. And that's what ends up in like horrible states doing horrible atrocities to whole groups of people for no better reason than they have this bloodline or they have this ideology or they have this religion. That's disgusting and wrong. And that's why Nietzsche is dangerous. And I insist upon this because... I suspect that the reason that Nietzsche is so popular now goes hand in hand with the fact that Nietzsche is advocating a fascism that is also growing in popularity right now. Um, like, it's complicated. Um, it's incredibly complicated. There's a whole French school of philosophers right now who think that Nietzsche is the bee's knees, that they are, he is the foundation of their philosophical outlook. And some of these French guys I actually totally agree with. Like, I think Foucault has a lot of really good things to say. I think... Um, I think Derrida has a lot of great things to say. I think Deleuze has a lot of great things to say. And all of them claim Nietzsche as one of their progenitors, largely because Nietzsche questioned things. Nietzsche challenged things. That's good. Challenging and questioning things is what philosophers are supposed to do. But if all that you have to supplant that with is anger, destruction, hatred, if your version of the ideal of becoming is overcoming and destroying if destruction is as critical to your philosophy as creation, then there's something wrong with your philosophy. Um, and this philosophical outlook is pervasive, more than just like as it's expressed in this text. People want to believe this because it makes them feel strong. But strength isn't necessarily a virtue the way that Nietzsche insists upon it. Strength like, what Nietzsche is basically saying is, here is my philosophy of toxic mas masculinity. All of you should follow it because that's the ideal. And it's gross. Like, as much as we like action heroes and we like people who get shit done and we like people who just don't take crap and beat up anyone who gets in their way, as much as we like watching James Bond sleep with the girl and take out the bad guy and save the civilized world, that's a bullshit fantasy and we should all recognize that it is a bullshit fantasy it is indulgent it is every bit as decadent as nietzsche insists that his that the broken moralities of his time are decadent decadent in a different way admittedly but decadent nonetheless but i don't want to end my discussion of nietzsche on a downbeat like again be wary of nietzsche be aware of people making these sorts of arguments these sorts of will to power seize the day like do what you want to do be the best version of yourself by overcoming all of the people who are crappy like be very wary of these but i do want to talk about the other two major philosophical ideas that nietzsche discusses over the body of his work 
Um, the third one that we haven't talked about, but which has definitely been hanging out in the margins of this conversation for a while, is the idea that God is dead. Um, this is the single most famous Nietzsche quote ever. Quote, God is dead. Um, the, I think the first time that he expressed it was in The Gay Science, again, back when he was like experimenting with his ideas rather than like propounding them from as though they are like the capital T truth. Um, the idea there was that God is dead because we killed him. Um, the setup is that there's a man with a lantern walking around the night looking for God, and he is told that God is dead because we killed him. The insistence here is that Nietzsche is not actually making a point about theism one way or the other. Nietzsche probably is an atheist, but Nietzsche really doesn't care. Like, this is not important to him. Um, the argument that God is dead isn't even an argument. It's an observation. It's an assessment of the historical situation. What Nietzsche is saying is we don't need God anymore. Our culture has given up on God. Our culture has moved past God. We killed him. Um, between the rise of rationality during the Enlightenment and Kant ultimately insisting that all of his moral principles were based not on Christianity but rationality and God was just a guarantee at the end of it, basically what Nietzsche is saying is Kant told us, Kant made a philosophy without God. He gave us Christianity and took the God out and we were totally willing to swallow that. At this point in the 1850s, what Nietzsche is observing is God is not the motive force of our culture anymore. You know, for 2,000 years, Christianity has been the most powerful force in the world. We have talked about gods for generations and generations and generations. He was the most important thing in our life. And now he's not. Now it's art. Now it's literature. Now it's rationality. Now it's this secular morality. Um, God is dead, therefore. He is no longer important. He is irrelevant, obsolete. Um, again, you can take that one as you will, but I do want to emphasize it's a historical observation. He's not actually making an atheistic argument. He's got plenty of those in The Twilight of the Idols, but mostly, like, they're not rational so much as they're just, you know, angry observations. Um, but the last one that I want to talk about is probably, like, the most important thing that Nietzsche really contributed to the history of philosophy going forward, at least. Like, there's a whole philosophical school that springs out of this idea. And he mentions it very briefly um, on the last page of our reading, 1243, um, when he's talking about like the different perspectives of the Greek and the sort of broken perspective on the Greeks by Lobeck and the better perspectives by Winkleman and Goethe. Um, but what he says is only in the Dionysian mysteries and the psychology of the Dionysian condition does the fundamental fact of the Hellenic instinct express itself, its will to life. What did the Hellene procure in these mysteries? Eternal life, the eternal recurrence of life, the future promised and made sacred in the past, the triumphant yes to life beyond death and change, true life as collective survival through procreation, through the mysteries of sexuality. Now, the Greeks do not have an afterlife the way that the Christians have an afterlife. And Nietzsche is not talking about eternal life in the way that like we talk about, you know, Jesus gave you eternal life. For the Greeks, eternal life is like, when you die, you go to Hades, and by most Greek standards, this is kind of a crappy place to be. Like, there's a good part of Hades and there's a bad part of Hades, but it doesn't matter. Being dead is being dead. You are just a shade, like a pathetic facsimile of what you used to be. A shadow. Um, not insubstantial, unreal, and unimportant. Um, your life after death is meaningless. However, 
for the Greeks, life itself was where everything important happened. As Nietzsche points out, procreation is sacred. You do not live on like literally in the sense of an eternal life, you live on in your descendants, in your generations. You repeat your life in your offspring. That is your legacy. That is what gives you life after death. That is what is important and meaningful and real. Um, but even more than that, Nietzsche expresses this philosophy or this philosophical idea of the eternal recurrence in the gay science as well. Um, and what he says is this sort of interesting thought experiment. He says, imagine that you wake up one morning and at the side of your bed is a demon. And the demon tells you that everything you do today and everything you did yesterday and everything you will do tomorrow will be repeated infinitely. Like every action you take, every choice that you supposedly think that you are making, everything that you do is going to be repeated endlessly over and over and over again eternal. It will recur over and over and over again. This day will recur over and over and over again. And what the demon asks is, are you okay with that? Are you okay knowing that every one of your actions, every one of the things that you do, every day of your life is going to be repeated endlessly? Are you happy with the decisions you've made? And if not, why not? What are you waiting for? There are no means to an end for this demon. There is no goal to accomplish. You'll notice Nietzsche insistently rejects the idea of goals. They are a fiction for him. There is only the now for Nietzsche. There is only today. So why are you, you know, listening to this lecture when you could be doing something with your life, writing a novel, creating a great work of art, preparing to build a house, um, engineering a great business. Like, I know it's kind of hard to talk about this because, like, COVID-19, we're all stuck inside, everything sucks, and, like, everything is just sort of set on hold. But for Nietzsche, he'd be like, bullshit, just go outside, do what you want. Like, don't pay attention to the cops. Like, beat them up if they come and get you. Nietzsche would say that this whole COVID-19 situation is totally wrong. Let the old people die. Our our culture is, you know, decadent for letting these people live on past their usefulness to society. Let them die. Let the society go. Let the virus kill the weak. That's totally a Nietzschean argument. And that's yet another reason why Nietzsche is suspicious and probably wrong. Um, but what he insists from a good perspective is that you should take your life in hand. Use your time wisely. Don't make excuses. Like, why are you taking this class? My average student is going to answer because I want to get the grade, because I want to get the diploma, because I want to graduate from Sussex County Community College and then go to a better college, and then I want to, you know, get a good degree at that college so I can get a good job, so I can, like, make money, so I can buy a house, so I can have a wife or a husband, so I can have kids, so I can, you know, like, have the entire American dream. And Nietzsche asks, why? What good is that? Why do you want these things? Why are you willing to put up with so much drudgery, so much shit on a day-to-day -day basis just to keep putting up with more and more shit on a day-to-day -day basis? 
Like we all have that retirement end of the tunnel vision. Like, oh, we'll get like 20 good years. Like after I turn 65, like maybe I'll, I'll have like 15 or 20 years and I can like travel the world or, you know, take a cruise or actually enjoy myself. And Nietzsche's like, are you kidding? When you're 70, that's what you're looking forward to? That's the big end goal here? Like you just want to not die? bullshit you're young go be young go do stuff go have parties go have sex go like make memories go new places go do stuff don't just sit here listening to me prattling on about these old dead white dudes like go make something of yourself don't wait you're already wasting time are you happy with what today looked like? Are you willing to say that this is the best use you could come up with for these 24 hours? Or did you just sit around and watch Netflix play Animal Crossing and listen to me yell at you? Why? Why do you put up with that? See, as much as Nietzsche is, again, sort of morally bankrupt and totally like able to be exploited for horrible people doing horrible things this idea flourishes this is what will become ex existentialism and we're not going to talk about existentialism in this class very much so this is like the only chance i get to talk about it guys like camus guys like sartre run with this idea of the eternal recurrence and they ask ourselves you know what are you doing with your life Literally every minute of every day is yours to use however you want it. And while Nietzsche rejects the idea of free will and responsibility, for the existentialist, free will and responsibility is front and center. It is foremost in their minds. It doesn't matter what ideology you follow for the existentialists. You want to be a communist? Be a communist. You want to be a capitalist? Be a capitalist. You want to be a Nazi? Be a Nazi. But importantly, for the existentialists, the important thing is you do what is important to you. Stop bullshitting. Stop standing around waiting for something to come to you. Stop making excuses for yourself. You are free to use this minute and the next minute and every minute of your life however you want to. But importantly, with that freedom comes responsibility. You are 100% responsible for your own actions. Not philosophers, not re religion, not the Bible, not the government. You do what you want. And if it's worth it, then you do it. And if it's not worth it, then you don't do it. But that's the only metric. Stop acting like your actions are determined by someone else. Stop saying, I do it because my parents want me to, or I do it because God wants me to, or I do it because, you know, it is the right thing to do in some objective sense. No, it's not. It's what you want to do. You do it because you decide to do it. You decide to do it because you decide what means something in the world. And for the existentialist, that's it. Nothing else can make that meaning for you. Even if you follow the Bible, you decide to follow the Bible. You decide what the Bible means. You decide how to apply the Bible in every specific circumstance. You decide what that should look like. And in doing so, you decide what that should look like for everyone around you. Because that's the other side of it. This is not you in a bubble. Like Nietzsche and the existentialists agree, this is not you decide and it only matters to you. No, you decide and you make a decision for everyone around you. You decide and you make a model of yourself. You stand as an exemplar. This is what is meaningful in my life and it is what is meaningful for everyone's life. None of this, eh, whatever you want to do, bullshit. 
No. You made the decision, you decide what morality is, and you require that morality of everyone else. If you think it's good to get married, then you get married and you assume that it's good for everybody else who can, you know, afford it or make it happen. If you decide not to get married, then you are rejecting the institution of marriage and you tell everyone around you by your actions that it is bankrupt and wrong. If you decide to vote Democrat, then you are telling everyone that the Democrats are the way to go. If you decide to vote Republican, then you decide that for everyone that the Republicans are the more virtuous of the political parties. If you do not vote at all, then you are protesting the institution and you are telling everybody else that they should do the same. That's every action you take for the existentialists. And to some degree for Nietzsche as well, even though Nietzsche rejects this idea of free will. What all of them emphasize is that you need to stop making these excuses. You need to stop pretending like your life is in somebody else's hands. No, your life is in your hands and your hands alone. And if you are not happy with it, then the only person you have to blame is you. If you are unhappy in your life, if you were upset with your circumstances, the problem isn't your circumstances. It's you. Make something better. Make something out of yourself quit whining be what you want to be if it's not possible make it possible because you control everything that is important about your life so do it <laughs>